I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Okay, ready? I've I've prepared something for you. You ready? When I grow up. I want to be a caretaker coach with all the kudos and none of the responsibility. You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm your host, Emma Race, and it gives me the greatest pleasure to be here with my Sanctum football-loving, kicking, marking, (laughs) at the highest point, (laughs) fanning sisters. I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Cyril Rioli in a tradies outfit. (laughs) I'm Liam Pickin as the Joker. I am Nick Rewald as Freddie Mercury. Well, I guess I'm Sam Mitchell the Smurf then. (laughs) Of course. He just nailed that, didn't he? Do you know what he really did? And I I could write an actual thesis about (laughs) Sam Mitchell being dressed as the Smurf, but can you just indulge me momentarily? I was really worried about what he would go as because I thought he so rarely shows his true like who he really colours? is. In, yeah, his true, <laughs> his true blue. pale blue colours. Yeah. I thought he's a coach now, like he's a very serious mm. dude. He wants people mm. to take him serious. We've seen him with his kids. I was like, oh, this is a, bi- this is a big thing for him. Yeah. Like he, to get mm. this right, it's a big thing for him. And I just thought <laughs> he nailed it. Like I, thought, I think he really committed and that is the sign mm. of someone who has a good heart and his kids and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Do you think that is correct? Or do you think he was sending a subliminal message about the blues? Don't. (laughs) That's just bad. I think he just went with the theme, the M&D theme, which is blue and white. And everyone calls those hats the Smurf hats. He got really into it. And also, here's a little stat from Champion Data. You know a Smurf is three apples high and so Sam Mitchell. But I thought Nick Rewalt nailed that. Three votes, best on ground. To Nick Rewalt because he stayed in character yes. as yes. he went down the slide. Yes. And oh. there's a photo of him when he's just about to hear the water and he's still yeah. holding the, the microphone. microphone. <laughs> in full Freddie Mercury. And full mm. disclosure, you know I have an issue with recognising people, a condition. And I was looking at those photos and I was saying to my husband, I don't know who that is. Oh, <laughs> I had to Google to work out it was Nick Rewalt. Oh, wow. I mean, I knew it was Freddie Mercury. Okay, so this is Kate and I'm Nicole. This he, is Emma. I just thought he really rocked it. Have we got a commentary watch from today? We do. I just wanted to say that I heard in the Richmond match the other night, one of the commentators say this about Dusty Martin, that he has grown as the game has gone on. And I wow. found that 
quite astounding. It was quite an interesting to, to, to pick it up too, to, to, to pick up that he was growing as the game went on. Did they mark him on the wall <laughs> at the, on the as first quarter? As he came out of the race. Then... Yeah, exactly. They must have. They was must it have. in apples? Well, <laughs> that's right. He was three apples tall at the start and then four by half time. So I did a bit of research regarding when it is that humans stop growing. Because half time. <laughs> That's right. I want to say, first of all, it's possible to keep growing after puberty, okay? And for boys, this can continue into their early 20s. So Dustin Martin was born in 1991 and he's currently 27. So I think it would be highly unusual for him to have still been growing at this stage. His nose on. and ears continue to grow, though. Yeah, yes. yes. Dye, well, that's right? what it, And hair. If that's the case, the commentators, I think, need to be more precise if that's what they're, they're <laughs> getting at. But I just wanted to mention that some of Martin's younger teammates, like Sydney Stack, could still be growing because they are younger than in their early 20s. And so I think it's possible that we might see Sydney stack growing as the game goes on this weekend and I'd like you to keep an eye on that maybe and we should introduce a little marker maybe a little on marker. the race, as you say, as you, you come out. You know how Lucy Race likes to measure people's age is whether they were alive when Prince Charles and <laughs> Diana got married and yes. there's players playing now who weren't even alive when Princess Diana was alive. Pray, My does, mind that is must blown. blow your mind. Absolutely. I mean, that's your measurement. That's your yep. measurement of time. We have a friend who measures time in the years it of the Olympiad. Yes. <laughs> I have another thing that Ruckman are always older than me. They're not. They're just taller. No. <laughs> okay, learnings from versing. It's a new segment. <laughs> looking forward to this. <laughs> Can you see I'm looking at you with utter contempt? I know. Okay. I. I am bringing a new segment and it is called Learnings from Versings. <laughs> and it has it's grown out of a debate on Twitter, which happens every so often about particular words and in particular the word versings. What I would like to say to you is that from conflict can come growth. Language evolves. We know Ooh. this. It is alive. <laughs> Yawning over here. And who creates it? The people. Now, versing comes from mostly from children and it comes from usage. The most important thing about language is that it communicates something and versing does this. Often it is used as a, a shorthand. The reason that I will fight for it is because I didn't always think this way. I did a degree in English Lit. I was a grammar Nazi, a spelling Nazi. And I'd like to tell you a little story about myself. When I first got onto Twitter, one of the very first tweets I sent was to correct somebody for their spelling. Oh, you must no be so much fun You're so fun at a party. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I know. And I got around. shouted down. And what I <laughs> did that. was I went away me. and I had to think about it. And I'm actually, like, I'm really quite serious about this. I feel really ashamed that I did that because... What I think you do when you police grammar and spelling and words like versing is that you exclude people from the conversation and you make a decision about who gets to decide what is an appropriate word or, you know, there are reasons why people might spell something a certain way. The most important thing about language is that we understand the meaning and we understand the meaning of versing. It is actually one of the most democratic things in the world. In the world. To have... <laughs> language change. That's I'm an so actual positive. editor. Like that's, I actually have to do that. So like there is, I think there are rules and I do think things like when there's grammar that exists and you start messing with that grammar in a way that doesn't enhance in any mm. way, like the forgotten past perfect that the Americans have given up on. I just think that's, it's wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I'll leave you with one thing. Okay. Yeah. AFLM. Oh, 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 what have you done? Mic drop. Mic drop. She just got us. That must hurt you, Katesia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs>
Okay. Speaking of words, yes, I've been having a bit of fun with some nicknames. So there are some nicknames out there of players that are quite lofty and ambitious. And, you know, one of them is Demon Cade Chandler, who's called Google, because according to his captain, he literally knows everything. So that's interesting. And if you think about Gary Jr., he's the... The little master, right? And his dad, you know, even loftier than that. But there are also players whose names have kind of morphed and been upgraded over time. Yeah. Yeah. Remember Patrick Cripps used to just be called Cripper? In the course of one game, it seems, he moved from Cripper to Captain Fantastic. (laughs) And by the end, he was Hercules. And now I'm seeing Hercules, (laughs) like, all over Twitter. Do you guys remember Lee Matthews' original nickname? Barney. He was Barney Rubble and then he became Lethal Lee, which is clearly an upgrade. Oh, yeah. What about Dermot Brereton? Do you remember his original nickname? The Kid. That was the Mm. upgrade. Oh. As someone who was at the club, as a young person, I will tell you his original nickname was Barbie. Barbie. I'm not kidding because he had the, when he did the blonde hair. Yeah. From and Barbie to the Barbie kids. Barbie the perm in the I don't know that that's common knowledge. Football Barbie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was basically a football Barbie without. <laughs> Frankston Barbie. <laughs> GWS's Tommy Sheridan and Nick Haynes were both called The Train. And so Haynes upgraded himself to plane, but apparently it hasn't taken off. <laughs> <laughs> you oh, can't upgrade your own. I've worked on that for a long time. You can't upgrade your own nickname. It's given to you and, Clearly, that's, and that right. is that. What's your nickname? Emma Race? In some circles it's Decoy. <laughs> Yeah. Which is weird. You guys don't call me decoy. I think you've probably heard it, which gets abbreviated to Deeks. <laughs> Deeks. Yeah. Like Robert Deeks, Stella. Yeah, like Deeks, just like Deeks. You've always reminded me What's of Deeks. It's yours? your mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yours is Doc, obviously. Well, no, most pe- oh, it's from school, Susie. People always call oh, me. How do they get pe- to that? <laughs> I know, it's hard. Look, let me talk <laughs> you through leap. it. No, most, most people I know call me Sears actually. And we're looking, of course, through the glass at Teddy Armstrong. What about um, you, Hayes? Uh, Hazy and Nick. Not, not very imaginative. <laughs> Although my nieces and nephews call me Noosie. Oh, Isn't that adorable? That's and cute. Lucy but Rose. I didn't think I had one, but my niece calls me Noodle. Oh, Yeah. All right, ladies, roll up your sleeves. Given that Lucy's given us carte blanche to change language, let's malay. <laughs> Over the weekend, some for a sports fan, it's been delightful mm. to be able to stay awake and lie on the couch in your clothes and try and stay awake for all of the sporting exploits that the Australians have been exercising uh, abroad, the Matildas, of course, but huge news was Ash Barty and Dylan Alcott just taking it on the red dirt, the Ontakar of Roland Garros. <laughs> it's been a huge moment. Nicole, you brought attention to a real moment that this was on Twitter and it blew up in the biggest way. And then Peter Fitzsimons wrote an article and basically it was the whole article was about your tweet. <laughs> Is that kind of what happened? It was. I mean, I wasn't the only one. You guys all kind of noted the moment too. But I guess what the quote was, was take a minute, Australia, breathe it in. Right now we're celebrating Ash Barty, Adam Goods and Dylan Alcott, an Indigenous woman, an Indigenous man and a man with a disability. These heroes have much to say. Time to sit quietly and listen. That was the tweet that started the conversation and then, you know, as you said, Peter wrote about it and it just went off. But I think the thing that really surprised me, or not surprised me, but did unsettle me was how many times variations of why not just call them Australians came up, that that response was a really common one. It was very frustrating to continue to read that. But also my comeback to that was, you know, the fact that we have ignored and displaced, neglected, insulted and abused Indigenous people, people with disabilities, people of colour, LGBTIQ people. Entirely on the basis of that. And that's been their journey and shaped part of who they are. So we don't get to erase that part of them just because we now want to claim them and their success because they've behaved in a way that we want to applaud. 
And also, it's how they identify and to take that agency away from them. Ash has been really open about how she was inspired by Yvonne Gulagong Corley and how important it was for her to see a successful Aboriginal woman to know about and to be mentored by this incredible Aboriginal woman. And Dylan Orcott has said, and I'm just going to quote him, when I was getting bullied about my disability, if I could have turned on the radio and heard someone like me or put on the TV and seen someone in a wheelchair... If I had have seen that, it would have changed my life instantly. When we think about the treatment of Adam Goods too, you know, I think immediately of the message that was being sent to kids of colour, Aboriginal or TSI kids in particular, about what it means to be an Aboriginal man. If someone of that calibre gets treated like that, what are we saying to them? Mm. I never forget when we interviewed Tanya Hosh. I reckon it was like maybe like the fifth episode ever of this podcast years and years ago. And she was talking about... During the week, she loved football because she loved seeing representations of Indigenous men being celebrated. And she said every other day of the week, if you saw an Indigenous man on the TV, it was always for things that had gone badly or had gone wrong. And how much it meant to her to jump into football because of those representations. It made me cry at the time. I think that that probably still exists for her Mm -hmm. and especially, you know, especially through this Adam Goods thing. But I thought it was a really good point that we take the opportunity to celebrate because the people we have celebrated in sport for so long have just been so narrow. There's a really passionate and important debate that goes on among Indigenous people about whether the phrasing of something like Indigenous Australians or Aboriginal Australians is appropriate or not. And a lot of Indigenous people would say that being referred to as an Indigenous Australian offends them because they'd consider themselves as an Indigenous person rather than being sort of captured by the phrase of being an Australian. And so you're right. I mean, you have to listen to how people define themselves and describe themselves and I think defer to people's lived experience and the way that they identify and that's really important. You're right. Like the reason it's so important is representation is important. We often talk about you can't be what you can't see, but also to actually, not even in terms of ambition, I think it's really important to be able to see yourself reflected back. And we saw that this week. I'll cross to musical theatre because, you know, I like to do that. (laughs) But this week at the Tony Awards, Ali Stroker won a Tony for the best performance by an actress in a featured role for Oklahoma. When she was accepting her award, she said, this award is for every kid who is watching tonight who has a limitation or a challenge, who has been waiting to see them themselves represented in this arena. You are. Alice Stroker is in a wheelchair. The thing about less representation means that less people see themselves, but it also means for everybody else, it changes our view of of what the world looks like. And there was a great piece by Judy Human, who's a leader in disability rights and civil rights. And she wrote a piece about Ali's award in The Hollywood Reporter. And she said, when there's less representation, there's less opportunities for audiences to learn about us, about our experiences and fewer examples to change their common thinking about disabled people being somehow broken, abnormal or in need of repair. One of the things that was really interesting about that story was that I read that many of the theatres that she performed in that people would perform in that aren't accessible Mm. for people in wheelchairs, don't have ramps. And if you go online and see the footage of her accepting that award, she comes on from backstage or to the... um, She's from the wings. From the wings. To me, that's extraordinary. You know, it's a kind of reminder that even though representation matters and she was represented and visible at that point, she's sort of also surrounded by these structural and architectural limitations, which we see in every walk Mm, of life. You know, we we see them in footy stadiums, in sporting stadiums, Mm. in footpaths. They're everywhere. And yeah, it's a 
a it's a real reminder of that kind of stark distinction between accessibility and I, representation. I always remember Jackie Jones who wrote a story in from the out of the book that Alicia and I edited, talking about how I believe it's the MCG underground car park. Her van, this is her only way of being transported because she has cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. The roof in the underground car park isn't high enough for her van, and so she has to park a long way away for her to go to the footy. You know, the symbols are so so important, but so are the logistics. We've just mm. got to get that. We've got to get better at that. Seeing her win that award was amazing. It made me think of the Queen's birthday honours came out. I recently heard someone speaking who is on the panel of adjudication for Queen's birthday honours. Is that mm. what it's called? It's yeah. called, you know, when you get an yeah. Order of Australia, Australia medal, whatever. And so they've been trying to get more women nominated because it's traditionally, I think it was like 23% of recipients have only ever been women and the rest are all men. He made the point pretty much behind every male winner is a woman who's done equally as much work and potentially got that man to that point as well. And so what I was really interested in seeing is the fact that Peter Searle and Peggy O'Neill were both recognised with Queen's Birthday Honours and yet we still don't have a woman in the Hall of Fame for the AFL. So the thing that they've been recognised mm. for in a national sense, they still haven't been recognised for by our actual league and I think that that will be a real kick up the bum for the Hall of Fame to take a look at what's happening and how women are being represented because it's just it just felt so uneven. There was a huge number of women who got nods that are people that we've spoken to. Natasha's Dr. Spoiler, of course, mm-hmm. but huge ups to to Peggy and to Peter Searle. That I felt like that was a real moment. Yeah. I was really interested this week to see the AFL put out a statement. It was at about four o'clock on Friday afternoon, which is usually when you take out the rubbish. But the AFL put out a statement that was really emphatic in support of Adam Goods. And it was in advance of the launch screening of the documentary, which launched the Sydney Film Festival. And lots of footy people, lots of Sydney people got to see it. And the thing that shocked me the most by it was... There was a really huge reaction from lots of people and lots of people who probably listened to this podcast where they said too little, too late, which I completely acknowledge and I I agree with that. But what I thought about in that moment was that Tanya Hosh would have been the person who wrote that statement. She would have advocated for writing a statement. She would have advocated since October last year when she saw the documentary that the AFL needed to take a stand on it. There was probably not an appropriate time to release a statement like that until four o'clock on the Friday before it was shown at the Sydney Film Festival. Mm. I think it's problematic for us to talk too much about the documentary until everybody has had a chance to see it. So we'll hold off from digging in further on the doco. But I just wanted to make the point that sometimes when you are having those reactions, because I had that too, and I thought, you know, too little, too late. And then I thought about the actual technicalities of it and thought, don't shoot the messenger. Mm. Because Tanya Hosh is on the front line and she's also sitting on the precipice between fans and the AFL. You think about the time that Adam Goods was going through this. She was working for Recognise. So she had a lot to do with him. And I imagine that that moment had a lot to do with her taking the role. So I just wanted to recognise that she is doing the work. And at the moment, she probably feels, and I don't know, I haven't spoken to her about this, but just that she's not getting any support necessarily from the outside and possibly she's getting pushback from the inside as well. And I just thought it's a really good moment to talk about resistance because there are so many different forms of resistance. And I think we need to have really valuable conversations and input. It's really important to understand that resistance comes in lots of forms and it's often part of change and it's often part of the conversation. And I have this this 
amazing diagram in front of me. It's called Forms of Resistance. It kind of takes you through all the different types of resistance that we hear. And I just wanted to make a note for all of us that when we're trying to change people's minds or we're trying to change a situation, we're always going to face resistance. So as much as it's important for us to form an argument and to find evidence to support what we believe, it's also really important for us to recognise and to combat in our minds before we take on the argument, what kinds of resistance we might face. And I just found this really useful. There's lots of different types of resistance and you would know a lot of them. We've seen a lot of them this week. They go from denial, as in there's no problem here, all the way through to let's just call it Sam Newman. Like (laughs) there's a huge, there's a huge scope. There's disavow. So there's like, it's not my job to do something about this, which we hear a lot. There's inaction. It's not a priority right now. Appeasement. We must do something, but not today. Appropriation. Of course we'd, you know, we would do that if only there was more people with merit to be allowed in the Hall of Fame, whatever it is. Co-option. What about what about white men? When are they going to have a special day? Uh, repression. We tried that once and it didn't work out. And then, of course, backlash, which we always face. But I just thought it's a really interesting time. We're all trying to make sense of how to move forward. And I think that this is part of an argument that I hadn't really considered before. Mm. It's kind of like we're living this when we're talking about if you're going to post something online, part of it is posting and the other part of it is monitoring. Monitoring. Mm. Again, when we talk about when you're aiming for change, you can change kind of the culture, but you also have to change the systems. And Following up on what you just said then, Em, in terms of comments, you know, we saw that played out where the AFL released the statement and then it was put onto some, you know, various social media platforms. And so I guess the attitude had changed in terms of putting out the statement, but the system hadn't changed as well to to really back it up and do it in a really meaningful way. For instance, having somebody sitting there moderating in real time to make sure we didn't perpetuate the types of bad behaviour and disavow that we'd seen. Exactly. The other thing about resistance is if we acknowledge that it's going to come and that it can deplete us and it can be exhausting. And I know that you faced a lot of this this week with that tweet, Nicole, like Mm. people really did grab onto it, but they also, there was a lot of resistance to it. Mm. And I think if we acknowledge that we're going to face resistance, we can support ourselves to get through it rather than feel surprised when it comes back at us. Can we share that on our social medias? Yeah, I will do that. Social medias? Uh, It does make me think about the state of origin, the NRL Mm. players and their extraordinary moment of the Indigenous players, many of them not singing the national anthem. And it was just such a quiet, dignified, um, and I know sometimes dignified isn't good enough, but in this situation, it was such a powerful statement and and it was really impressive. And I really feel like the fallout was minimal. I Mm. think there was a lot of acceptance that this was a legitimate and fair way of expressing their discomfort with the anthem and and all that it represents. Now, whether they need that approval or not, I don't know. I I would say they probably don't. But it was heartening to see that there was mainstream acceptance to varying degrees anyway. I wonder if this is something that we're seeing played out in some of the stories we're seeing about fan (laughs) behaviour. Yes, there's been so many. Yes, so we've seen this week a number of stories about fans being ejected or um, receiving some kind of sanction for behaviour while they're at the arena. There's been some discussion by the AFL Fans Association about wanting some clarification. I did a Kate Sear and went and had a look and I don't think you'll be surprised to learn that the AFL is basically a Hobbesian microcosm. Oh, Russell Hobbs? (laughs) (laughs) You made a casual. It's a toaster. (laughs) Delicious. 
And by that, what I mean is the philosopher Thomas Hobbes talks about that it's part of the social contract that in nature, everything has the right to do whatever it likes. And when we form a society, we decide which of those rights we will give over to the state. Now, if we want to look at this, you know, broadly, it's problematic because it doesn't take into account power structures. But if we look at going to an AFL game, there is basically terms and conditions, um, conditions of entry to an AFL venue. That states quite clearly that there are certain obligations that you as a fan, when you enter these arenas, that you uphold, particularly 12E and 12G, which talk about the way that you act towards officials on the field and the way that you act when you're sitting in your seats. And I know that it seems frustrating and there's a lot of the PC gone mad response to this, but I actually wonder whether it's, you know, it's a case of the pendulum swinging a little bit and maybe people are reporting things a little Mm. bit and conflating things too, because, you know, there's one particular instance of somebody having a go at Matthew Nichols, the umpire. There's some evidence to suggest that the way that that fan behaved in terms of running down to the front of the stadium and there was reports that he'd banged on the on the fence and was gesticulating wildly and Matthew was not feeling very comfortable about that. Well, that's the thing. It's not just about language because I saw mm. this. There was an article in The Age about a fan who had been not set upon but that six police people had come to visit him, pay him a visit for his behaviour. Mm. There was people around saying he wasn't swearing, he was just being really loud. I still think that it doesn't matter if you're not swearing, you can still terrify people. So I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So I can't comment on it further than that. But just the fact that we're looking for swearing, that doesn't necessarily make it not antisocial behaviour. Lucy, you've got the wording there in front of you, the sort of terms and conditions of entry into the stadium. And it's actually very broad. It, It isn't just confined to use of foul language, but it's insulting, offending, humiliating. Can you tell us? Absolutely. It says that you won't engage in any conduct, act toward or speak to any player, umpire or other official or other patron in a manner or engage in any conduct which threatens, offends, insults, humiliates, intimidates, disparages or vilifies that other person on the basis, including of the things that we usually talk about. I mean, it's interesting, Lucy, we were talking before too about the fact that everybody comes to the game with their different experiences and different expectations and perspectives. And some people certainly go to the footy and think, I want to come here and I want to yell, I want to get out emotion or express feeling. And I think there has been a tendency in the past to think about that as the only appropriate way to sort of be a fan or a way of being a fan that is unquestionably endorsed. And as I was saying to you earlier, I often think about the very first time I took my partner to a football game here and he's from the UK and the sport that he is used to attending is soccer, where of course fans are segregated. We went to a Hawthorne-Collingwood game on a Friday night and it was a huge crowd. It was like 85,000, 86,000 people there. I remember it very vividly that he spent the entire game nervously fidgeting and asking me if everything was okay and is something going to happen because he couldn't believe that people from the opposing teams were sitting next to each other and that we had a Collingwood fans on either side of us or around us and, and that when people yelled and cheered, he was fearful the entire time that it was going to kick off and that somebody would stab somebody, wow. lit, quite literally. Literally. Yeah. And it took him a bit of time to get used to and feel comfortable about being in that environment. It's important to recognise that it doesn't feel safe for everybody and sometimes it's not safe. So on that, I had a lovely experience on the weekend. I went to watch the Carlton VFLW girls play Northern Territory Thunder. 
can I just say, going to the VFL is W is so awesome. You're just watching Chelsea Randall on yeah. a Saturday afternoon in Bandura, which mm. was a really long way to go. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was fantastic. And when I was there, I ran into Catherine, who is a listener to the podcast, and she often gets in touch with us. And I recognised her because she has a daughter called Isabel, who is a huge AFLW super fan. And she had started her own podcast after listening to our podcast. So when you think about you can't be what you can't see, there's Isabel at 13. She may have been 12 at the time. She asked to interview us for her footy podcast. We started talking. Isabel is such a super fan of the AFLW. She loves it. She loves Adelaide. She loves Chelsea Randall and she loves Erin Phillips. But she'd never been to a men's game, to an AFLM game. And so her mum took her and she was really shocked and surprised by the behaviour there. And she found it really confronting. And she actually thought that it was lousy atmosphere and environment. Mm. And she went home and she wrote a convention on the rights of a footy fan. And she has written this unbelievable document. Catherine sent it to us and we've been kind of wowed by reading it. It's been presented, she's presented it to Tanya Hosh at the AFL and Tanya sat and listened to it and took notes and has it sitting on her pinboard apparently. They've really listened to what she had to say and there's a couple of articles that she's written. It's the convention on the rights of the young sports fan. She outlines it. I think we should probably post it somewhere. I if think we're allowed to, okay. I'd love to. It's yeah, such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Amazing. beautiful. Article 8, she says, young people should be encouraged to respect coaches, officials and umpires. They should learn this from adults who role model fair and respectful behaviour, which mm. speaks to what we were just talking about. Can I read Article 17 as well? Sporting organisations should work towards gender equality. This includes equality in opportunities to play sport at all levels, equality in representation in the media and equality in decision-making. Fairly astute. Oh, wow. <laughs> it is such a beautiful piece of writing. It's so clear and concise. It is. Well done, Isabel. It's amazing. I remember last year Lucy and I saw Isabel at a game and she said that she had read the Convention on the Rights of the Child and I think that had inspired her to start thinking about these issues. And so, it, yeah, it's drafted like an international convention focused focuses on rights and and responsibilities and it's just an amazing piece of work. I commend her. Well and done, Isabel. At her same age, I was writing love letters to River Phoenix and getting his address out of the Smash Hits magazine. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Some of our younger listeners might have to Google who that River is. River Phoenix is. <laughs> On fan behaviour, can I just say that has obviously been a huge focus this week, but also we saw something at the Cricket World Cup that really intrigued and impressed me. So Steve Smith, of course, has made his comeback after suspension for the Sandpaper gate. gate, thank you. So Steve Smith's made his, his comeback, he's returned, he's playing for Australia, but he has been booed pretty relentlessly by the crowd. And there was a moment which really impressed me where Virat Kohli went over to the fans, the, the Indian fans, and encouraged them to stop booing and to support Steve Smith, who's been playing some fantastic cricket. I mean, what's happened has happened. Everyone's known that he's come back, he's worked hard, he's playing well for his side now. Just because there's so many Indian fans here, I just didn't want them to set a bad example, you know. I just felt for him and I told him I'm sorry for um, on behalf of the crowd. So I just was so impressed by that. And I thought to myself, gee, imagine if sports people and from opposing teams in particular, I couldn't help but think about Adam Goods, of course, but if people from opposing teams or even people, people on your own team stood up like Virat Kohli did and just called on fans to engage in better, more respectful behaviour. Virat Kohli is a man that's hugely influential in India and in, in world cricket more broadly. And I just um, I just wanted to doff my teeny tiny hat to him <laughs> 
because your baggy I thought, green. <laughs> that's right, my my little teeny tiny baggy green. Because I thought it was a wonderful display of um, sporting behaviour and also keep just keeping things in perspective and leadership, leadership, leadership. strong yeah. leadership. He just did something that would have been unpopular. It would have yes. been difficult, yep. but he yep. did it. So we all stayed up and watched the Matildas play the other night, which was amazing. And unfortunately, if we could just get rid of that last thirty seconds, it mm. would have been a different result. <gasps> mm. But there are so many stories coming out of the World Cup and it's hard to cover them all. But a big one is about the disparity in pay. And I think you'll recall that just ahead of the World Cup starting, the Matildas had flagged that um, they would be launching a, that they were launching a campaign for equity in prize money and they're prepared to take FIFA to court. Women in the World Cup are playing for 7.5% of the same purse that the men play for in their World Cup. 7.5%. And then overnight, Abby Wombach was on The Daily Show and she had this to say. The big argument, right, that I hear is that the men, the men's team brings in more money. So, of course, that's why they should deserve to make more money. But that's just not true. In 2015, the women's team brought in $6.6 million and the men's team only brought in two. So, like, that debate is now n- no longer can right. be part of this conversation. And this is a fight that is necessary. And it's not necessary just because women deserve it. It's necessary for all people everywhere, right? Because our our world feels like, I mean, you talk about all the things that seem to be on fire, right. that, that seem to be going wrong. I believe that women having more access to the tables where decisions are made, that will help this world better. It's so frustrating when there are different markers of success between the men's and women's competitions. And actually, I'd like to point you to an episode of the 30 for 30 podcasts, which are always fantastic. And there's an episode called Back Pass. And that is the story of the first US Women's Professional Soccer League, which was established after the 99 World Cup. So on the back of the success of that American team, it talks about the WSA, so the women's competition, had lost $100 million over three years and then was shut down. Now, at the same time, the men's league had lost $250 million in its first five years, but they were prepared to keep that going. So I think what is really frustrating is when there are different measures of success and there are different things that women's sport need to hit in terms of targets to be seen as successful or viable. I do find it really troubling when I love those Nike ads in the lead up to the World Cup and I go, oh, amazing, and they made me feel all the feels. And then I felt like saying, stop making ads and just give the players some money. money. <laughs> yeah, really. But I think it's a good point that, yeah. you know, it's it's great to feel the feels and, you know, that's that's a really important part of it, being inspired and, mm. and all of it's those things. Point. However, we also need real change. Yeah. And stop moving the goalposts. Uh, can I just say, I have, you know, I sleep with a runner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about runners. Sticking with the R theme of today's show, resistance, representation. Um, resilience. Resilience, this, this reconciliation. Show brought, this show was brought to you by the letter R. Recognition, runners. I want to talk about this because we haven't spoken about it yet this year. And, of course, the new AFL runners rule. Not so new now, but it's been in for a couple of months. So just to recap, in case you forgot, at the start of this year, the AFL changed the rule about runners. And the rule now reads as follows. The team runners may only enter the playing surface after a goal has been kicked and must exit before play restarts 
water carriers are not permitted to enter the playing surface during live play. One of the effects of this is that it means that you know messages from coaches don't get out to the players as quickly or as often. I think we are seeing coaches coach from the boundary more frequently now. And we're also seeing, of course, those signs that people are holding up sometimes with messaging on them. Sometimes they're just coloured squares that mean something, some kind of code there. I need the Rosetta Stone to work out what that's all about. But when the AFL announced this new rule, they indicated that the presence of numerous officials on the ground was a bad look and that that's what they wanted to move away from. They also said that runners could interfere with play. And of course, there's been instances of that happening over time. So in the last few weeks, I think we've seen some people start reflecting on the impact of the runners rule. You might remember a game last week where Michael Walters kicked the winning goal in Fremantle versus Collingwood. And there was some speculation in the ABC commentary box at the time that the inability of coaches to get a message out to players on the field had prevented Jordan Dugowie from getting back onto the field. Of course, the Pies ended up losing that game. And then there was also a tweet a few days later when Brendan Bolton was sacked, a tweet from Anthony Costa saying, and I'll quote, can't say firing Bolton was the wrong call, but the AFL's decision to ban runners made coaching an under-22 team with little senior leadership even harder. It got me thinking about whether the whether there are reasons why we should retain runners beyond what it looks like, um, especially if it means that coaches can coach play, players and teach them in the moment of the game. And I think that there's a parallel in my mind between the debate about runners and the debate about the use of earpieces um, and race radio in Grand Tour Cycling, which is a sport that I love. So riders have earpieces, you might know, and while they're racing, they're able to receive pretty constant feedback and communications from their team director about things like strategy, because there is a lot of strategy in um, Grand Tour Cycling, the progress and moves of other races. And that's really important to have that communication because tactically it gives you a sense of what's going on that might be harder to to kind of divine in the moment when you're actually in the middle of the peloton or even at the front of the peloton. So some experts would say that you can do away with those kind of communications because really tactics are worked out well in advance of the race and little changes in reality on the day. But others argue the contrary, that it's a moving feast and you need to be able to communicate with those players. There's also a kind of argument about whether having communication in Grand Tour Cycling, a bit like messages delivered by runners, taints the competition, whether it makes it sort of less pure in a way. I said to Nicole, I know that's a strange cycling. concept to, to use in relation to cycling, which is a sport that has been less than pure in the last few years. But anyway, but I do wonder what kind of sport we want, you know, whether we want a sport in which players are left to their own devices on the day and have to make decisions in the moment, including as they tire increasingly, or whether we want coaches to be able to give kind of constant, deliver constant instructions and make positional changes throughout the game. I wonder whether we will see more of the, you know, the Luke Hodge kind of appointments. Yes. Mm. And we used to have captain coaches. It kind of starts to yeah. make a bit more sense. I think in all of these things, it's it's in the time of change where it's tricky. And then once people are used to it, then it'll be fine and it won't matter. The people I really think of are the boundary riders. And we heard Charlie King on Grandstand a few weeks ago saying, it's really hard to see what's going on when you're sitting behind one of those boards that's being held up. <laughs> exactly. I, so I think the interesting thing is too with injury management, because we, we know how important the interchange has been in terms of that from an inju- injury management and condition management point of view. If they simply can't make eye contact with mm. the player, there's no way to go out there unless 
they score. It all, it, well, it also means that some of those players who are resistant to coming off can just stay on now because well, they don't the have. Just like, don't look. I didn't see. I didn't hear. <laughs> um, the under twelves. That's how they work. There is an analogy, or there are a couple of analogies for me in real life that have swayed me a bit more one way than the other, and and that is, you know, if you think about occasions in your personal life where you think it might be useful to have a runner be able to intervene. So, you know, if you're doing something like you're having an argument with somebody and it's only much later on that you think of a great comeback oh, that you, like you could have used. Like there was, there was yeah. a moment when you and I, Emma, were talking on the phone the other day and like a day later I thought, oh, I thought of something really funny I could have said to you and now the moment's <laughs> gone. If you had a runner in your in your personal life be able to intervene at those moments and say this is the best comeback or here's the funny line to sort of guide and coach you in those things, I think it would make for not only for better and more successful and effective arguments but better better humour. I love the cars that I hold I up. Don't. I just think they should use like a tarot system where it's open to Death. interpretation. The joker. <laughs> I'm just going to draw your attention to Article 16 of the Convention on the Rights of the Young Sports Fan as written by Isabel. Sporting organisations should be fair and consistent. For example, they should avoid changing the rules in the middle of a season and mm-hmm. only change the rules if there is a very, very good reason. I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Okay, let's go around the grounds. We've got somewhere special for you today. Yeah, hi, I'm Jeff Davis. I'm the football manager for the Central Kimberley Football League in the Kimberley region of WA. I wonder if you could start off by telling us what is the Central Kimberley Football League? Basically, it's a 17-team competition which includes Colts, men and women's teams. There's six women's teams, six men's teams and five Colts teams that come under sort of a six-club structure, and those six clubs are basically all remote communities. The addition of a women's competition or women's teams, how recent is that? That raised its head in about March last year. A number of times over the last five to ten years, we've had sort of token games of footy, sort of exhibition games of women's footy occasionally, where we've had a few women who have shown an interest and want to be involved. But I think what happened was when the AFL... W was televised, suddenly a whole bunch of women went, we can do this and we're not just being sort of, or, you know, that we're on show um, and that people laugh at. I went on a trip out to Nookumbar community, which is about 180 k's from Fitzroy Crossing, to see the men and talk with them about their participation in the competition, which was sort of flagging. Thomas Skinner, the one of the senior men out there, said, oh, if you're hanging around, can you go down the Oval and have a look? at what's happening down there and I went down there and there was about 50 women all training and laughing and joking and carrying on and around the oval there was also another 60, 100 people sitting on their cars and watching the women train. Now it was quite a, a joyful event and lots of hilarity. There was a real sense of we're doing something we really want to do, we're going to do it and uh, that was really the catalyst. Within three weeks a number of the other team or communities who had who we're trying to set up as footy clubs had gone, yeah, we want to be a part of this as well. So we set up a four-round competition where they all played each other once as an experiment last year during the men's season. It took off. Uh, we ended up with five teams that completed four games each. They didn't forfeit any. They had fantastic time. They wanted to compete against each other. So they asked us if we would run some finals, and we did. At the finals, 
for the women, we had most probably the biggest crowd that we had oh, for many years. It was you know, sort of it was a no-brainer that the women were going to be a very important part of our competition, if not the most important, <laughs> because of the enthusiasm and the, the joy and everything that they brought to it. So, Jeff, you're talking about some of the things that you know we see as benefits of women taking part in football particularly. What are some of the other benefits that you're seeing with the growth of women's football in this competition? The immediate impact in a, in a football sense was that go back a bit in in the early or well, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was the same sort of enthusiasm when when I went out to these remote communities with the men to get get involved in footy because Australian rules footy wasn't wasn't a, a sport of choice. Basketball was the main thing on the communities. There weren't ovals, and the advent of the Eagles and the Dockers meant that the men became very excited. Now over the years, the, due to lots of reasons, that excitement had been lost a bit. One of the impacts of the women coming on board is it's rejuvenated the men and the women have actually got involved in assisting the men getting better as well. In a broader community context, the women, and this sounds a bit sexist I suppose, but the women are far better off at organising themselves than the men. They seem to be more focused and driven towards things and so they've taken the lessons, I guess, that they need to learn on how to run a footy team or a footy club, and they're starting to apply it to broader things within their community. And a good example is in in Nookenbar, the council there is an all-women council, and a number of the women who are involved in the footy are also involved in the council. Now, I'm not saying that, that football was a, was a reason that there is an all-women council, but certainly the structures and the disciplines and the things that go with putting together a, and the knowledge to putting together a, a footy club and running it and getting in that access to town and bank accounts and all of those things uh, can be utilised far broader in the, in the community context. And, and it's a fun way of doing it. Footy is such a wonderful, exciting tool for the women to use to travel further in their lives and in their communities and how they structure up and do things there. Jeff, you mentioned the West Coast Eagles having a big impact. I want to ask you about birds because coming through my headphones, I can hear what sounds like a bird or maybe even a flock of birds in the in the background. What bird is it? Paint a picture for us of where you are at the moment and what, what's going on in the background. <laughs> I, I live in Fitzroy Crossing. We have a, a small block of 10 acres, which is just on the other side of the river from Fitzroy. We're about seven or eight k's from town and uh, we've got a uh, a bit of paradise here, I guess you would call it, that's a bit green and has water and stuff like that. And uh, I'm sitting on the veranda looking across the garden and there's birds in the trees and there's, there's a few galahs and I think you might be able to hear the crows cawing in the background, which yes. is a sort of Kimberley tune. Finches and willy wagtails and kookaburras and quite a few uh, birds here because it's we're right on the, within about 300 metres <coughs> of the Fitzroy River itself. We back our block backs onto it. Amazing. It's, <laughs> yeah, well, the river at the moment's just a, a river of sand. Um, we've had a very poor wet season this year and uh, had less than half the amount of rain that we normally have and the, the countryside's looking very brown. <laughs> Extraordinary. I, I wonder, Jeff, whether that cha- those changes in seasons and the wet season in particular has an impact on the competition. Oh. Does, it, does it impact and if so, how? Oh, absolutely. One of the one of the things which I think is incomprehensible to most of the people who don't live in a place like the Kimberley is the huge difference 
environmentally that people face and the challenges that tyranny of distance and the, the wildness of the countryside can, can cause as a challenge. Now, a good example, Ganda, which is an organisation which I persisted put together in the early 90s, was working with these remote communities to get them into competitions such as the Central Kimberley Footy League or the Ganda Festival. Now, some of those teams would travel four, five, six hundred kilometres and uh, the Sturt Creek came up one year, which is sort of halfway between here and Balgo, which is about 600 k's away. And uh, the teams all camped on the side of the river. They got that far. They couldn't get across so with their vehicles, so they swam across. Wow. Uh, and then they walked to the nearest station and got a vehicle to drive them in. They were two days late getting here, but that, oh. that, that's the sort of... Story. It's a it's a pretty romantic sort of story, but in, in saying that, it's also a hardship story yes. because the Central Kimberley Footy League, for instance, um, three years ago, we were the butt of everybody's jokes because we cancelled a game because it rained. It never rains during the dry season here, if you know what I mean, mm. or very rarely rains. And our oval, for instance, is not set up with interchange areas or areas where you can sit under when it's wet. The dry season doesn't rain, so you don't need to have sort of covering over the people who are doing the scoring and stuff like that. Well, it decided it was going to pour down for the whole day. We actually cancelled the footy, and footy's a winter's game, and everybody down south plays it in the rain, and it's what it's part of. But up here, we cancelled it because it was raining. Oh, my goodness. With the women's teams that are playing this season, do they have some particular issues in terms of getting to games? Absolutely. The good example is Wonka Jonka's 100-odd k's out of here. Uh, it's about 80 k's down the highway and about 30 k's in. When it rains, you, you, can't, get, you can't get in. At the end of the wet season, the road's rough. Um, vehicles trying to get in are quite often damaged. Um, often there's no licensed vehicles, often there's no licensed drivers. And so access to competition is a huge problem. Nookumbar is about 180 from here, of which 80 of it's on very rough dirt roads. They come to the turn-off and we actually try and send a bus out to pick them up from the turn-off. They sit in the back of an open tray uh, truck to get from the community to the turn-off for us to be able to pick them up. There's 76Ks in the back of an open truck. So sometimes during the dry season here, uh, if they've played, for instance, in Derby, it's about 100Ks from Derby to their turn-off going the other way. They'll be dropped off by a bus and then they'll sit there on the corner of the road between the highway and the road going into their community and they'll sort of light a little fire on the side of the road until a vehicle comes in to pick them up. And sometimes it's a truck, sometimes it's a troop carrier, sometimes it's a troop carrier going backwards and forwards two or three times. So, yeah, there's there's major challenges. But the, the terrain is one, but the, guy, the, the girls and the blokes are quite used to travelling that sort of stuff. It's the mechanics, like the, you know, the, the maintenance of the vehicles, the licensing of the vehicles, having the licensed drivers. One of the challenges that the women have faced is that they're sort of the new kids on the block in on these communities and the men have had precedence forever in relation to footy and, and still think that they should have. So if they've got to play two games in one weekend, which the women's competition now has meant has to happen because there's only one ground in Fitzroy Crossing that they can play. We've had to go from three games in Fitzroy Crossing on a Saturday to now five so that we can fit the women in. But that means, for instance, say the Wonka Jonka Crows ladies will come in on a Friday night and then the men have to come in, well, the women have to come in and go back on a Friday night and then the men have to go in, come in and go back on a Saturday. Shifting 50-odd people uh, twice in a weekend is much more difficult than shifting 25 people once in a weekend. So they're the, they're the realistic 
issues that these communities face if they want to participate in a centrally based competition. And Jeff, it sounds like, you know, with, you know, yes, there's, um, there are some challenges, but it's something that everybody wants to keep continuing. So why is that? Oh, I, I think I'm one of the luckiest men on earth. I mean, where can you work with a group of people who really want to play footy and really want to do something and will just about do anything to do it? One of the major problems is a lot of these people are, are really, really poor, you know, and they'll do, donate or divert lots of money to either getting in or, you know, bringing their kids in with them or their footy boots or paying for the fuel or whatever, or their their fees to play the game so we can umpire it. They're happy to do that. And I think that, you know, my kids, I'm married to a local Indigenous lady here and we've got kids and grandkids who love playing footy and we want that opportunity to happen. So the joy that I've gotten out of footy and my relations have gotten out of footy, we would love to see that that same joy be able to happen with the men and the women of the, these remote communities and they get equal access to the people in towns and you know communities around Australia have to access footy and it's a wonderful thing it's something that's terrific you know there's issues that we have to try and get over uh, but we've had some very generous people who want to assist we've started a GoFundMe campaign we've got about five and a half thousand dollars in that at the moment in in a couple of weeks where people are chucking in their 25 and 50 bucks saying we want to support the women in their in their endeavors to get in so you know we're in a really good space in the fact that there's so much goodwill not only in the people who want to play it but the people who want to assist us it's just a matter of really how do we pull it together and make it work in a sustainable way and how do we get over those sort of issues that are stopping us from being totally effective it sounds like an, an enormous logistical problem, but that you're doing fantastic work to try and continue that competition. Are there any women there that might one day make it to the AFLW? Absolutely. The, the answer is absolutely. Um, you just draw a line through the men and have a look at you know, the, the Riolis of this world. or It's no different in the women. They just haven't been exposed for long enough to the structures and the coaching and those things to for that to come forth. These girls... If they get to play and get good coaching, they could be fast-tracked within two or three years straight into an AFLW team and smash it. There are three girls here at the moment who are, one's 13, two are 14, who are just unbelievably good. They, and I spoke to Fremantle Dockers when I went to Perth a couple of weeks ago. There is no real mechanism at the moment to identify these girls and get them through the system. And in some ways that can be a benefit because... If you can get somebody who cares to listen and have a look, you know, you can sort of fast track them rather than having to go through, you know, every talent development squad and stuff the boys go through. So the answer, the long answer to a short question is absolutely. And it excites me greatly that there could be opportunities for these young girls if we can give them the social skills that are going to require to, to go and do it in the big smoke. Thank you so much for having a chat with us, Jeff. Really loved seeing the original story about what you're doing and the photos that went along with that. And we'll share that with our listeners. But um, we wish you all the best. Thanks for having a chat with us on the Outer Sanctum. Uh, no, and thank you very much for your interest. We much appreciate it. Oh, that Jeff was just delightful and hearing him contextualise where he was sitting and how different that is to where we're sitting right now. I just loved that. Thank you so much for doing that interview, ladies. Okay, it's the segment that just keeps on giving. It is. <laughs> Googamalizing with Felicity. <laughs> Okay, three weeks into this whole Googling with Felicity and I've struck a problem. People are saying, I've got an idea. Can you find out why the lines are mowed the way they are in uh, football grounds and whether they actually indicate how far you can run? Do the umpires use them? 
as some kind of visual guide to whether the ball's travelled 15 metres or whether a player's run too far without bouncing. I started Googling and what I realised was actually Google doesn't have the answer to this one. And I was really tempted for a minute to actually do some proper work and ring a greenkeeper or a groundsman. And then I thought, no, this segment's not called researching with Felicity. It's not called validated data with Felicity. It's called Googling. So what I found out from Google is nobody really knows what they're there for or why other than they look pretty. Some people say that they're meant to be 7.5 metres wide and other people say they indicate 15 metres. Some people say that you can't see them from ground level, making them redundant for using as some kind of visual guide. Others say you can see them from ground level, but it's easier to make out when it's dewy as opposed to when the ground's dry. I don't know that any of that's actually true. What I have discovered though, is it's really important that you use the right kind of mower. What you wanna do is you wanna get yourself a cylinder mower because apparently a cylinder mower, as it rolls over the grass, rolls it as well. And of course, the different lines are pretty much well accepted by Google to be made by which way the grass is lying down. So if you roll in one direction, it's gonna look one way. And if you roll in the other, the sun will glint off it a, a different way. So my tip would be, depending how wide your cylinder mower is, would indicate how wide the stripes are on the oval. I could do some actual research and find out the answer, but again, it's not what this segment's about. <laughs> She's such a jerk. Oh my God. Can I just say one other thing just off the back of that and the popularity of this segment? If you don't have versing, you can't have Googling. <laughs> Oh, too late, she cried. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're just in cahoots. All right, any final business, ladies? I absolutely do have some. I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to a clip that's come out from the Hawks in conjunction with Beyond Blue. Ebony Nixon talks. She's a VFLW Premiership player. And also, if you've ever seen the photograph of us after the Hawks VFLW Premiership, and I'm actually being carried... <laughs> This would be Ebony Nixon who lifted me to celebrate the win. She talks about her experiences post-grand final, that she had quite a struggle with mental health. It's a really great and very candid explanation of the difficult time that she had. And I really just encourage everybody to to listen and watch the clip. It's on the Hawks' Twitter feed and through their, their socials. Just because we know how important it is to break down the stigma around mental health, Ebony's Candor and honesty is really um, to be admired and encouraged. So well done, Ebs. If you're in Melbourne, something that you might like to do over the next week or so is head along to the WISPA, the WISPAA Women in Sport Photo Action Award exhibition. So you may have seen that the photo of Taylor Harris by Michael Wilson was awarded the inaugural Best Photo by Professional Photographer in these awards. The people that put it together have put together an exhibition that will be held from the 11th of June to the 28th of June at 50 Lonsdale Street. Well, you've already mentioned, Em, that the Queen's birthday honours list came out this week and that a number of women that inspire us and are doing great work in footy were recognised. I also just wanted to mention Kate Palmer, who's the CEO of Sport Australia and a real advocate for gender equality in sport. She was also recognised. So huge congratulations to Kate. And so is Cathy Reid, who's on the board of the Brisbane Lions. Congratulations to her. I went and visited the Brisbane Lions during the week and I have to say they have some space issues. I like going to see the club and seeing how they're all rolling out. The thing that they do so beautifully at the Brisbane Lions is their men's and women's teams are recognised 
recognised consistently side by side throughout the entire location. I just wanted to say thank you to Bree Brock for hosting me and for showing me around. I met lots of amazing Lions people. I was a bit in awe of them and I thought they were awesome. So if you're a Brisbane <laughs> Lions supporter, congratulations. You picked a really good team there. And also just a shout out to all of our listeners who are Carlton supporters, Bagus fans. You've been in the wilderness. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us today. Go Matildas. Absolutely. <laughs> keep watching, keep tweeting. And there's only one thing left to say. Are you going to join in with us, Teddy? Yep. Ready? There's only one thing left to say and it is... Go, Go footy! footy!